thank you, God, that we can praise your name because of the accomplished work of Jesus Christ the Lord. And we gather on this Easter Sunday to celebrate your goodness and grace that, Jesus, you indeed are alive. So as we take a look at your word now, guide us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Christ is risen. On this Easter Sunday, where is your hope? Where is your hope? For some people today, their hope is found in their wealth, in the accumulation of stuff, whether that be material possessions of some type, retirement savings plans of another. Their health, they find their hope in their health, the fact that they're doing well, and in their doing well, they feel fairly invulnerable able to accomplish and do anything. For others, it's their education, feeling like their hope is in further degrees, greater advancements. For some, their hope is in their family, the fact that they stay as a unit, that they long to continue to be together. For others, their hope is in their politics. In fact, I have friends through this pandemic that have so struggled with our country's response to the pandemic that they're moving out of our country. They're literally moving out of our country because they believe that their hope is in politics. In general, I'd like to suggest that our world believes its hope is in the academy. Now, when I say world, I mean Western world. I don't mean all of the world. But in Western civilization today, we believe very staunchly that our hope is in the academy, that somehow we will intellectually be able to gain a place where this will be our hope. Let me offer a couple of thoughts. So when you come from, you know, into the 19th century to the 20th century, right? People believed in coming into the 20th century that humanity, because of its intellectualism and because of Western culture, was never again going to see war the way we'd previously seen war, would never see famine the way we've seen famine, would never see disease again the way we saw disease. And then of course, there was the Spanish flu, killing 25 million people on the planet. There was then two world wars that followed. And everyone realized, wow, that wasn't good. So then now that we've entered the third millennium, the 21st century, the same thinking is going on. I don't know if you follow him or not, but uh, Yuval Noah Harari right, wrote his book in 2017, Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. Homo Deus, of course, meaning humanity is God. This is a long quote, listen. For generation after generation, humans have prayed to every god, angel, and saint and have inter and invented sorry, countless tools, institutions, and social systems. But they continue to die in the millions from starvation, epidemics, and violence. Many thinkers and prophets concluded that famine, plague, and war must be an integral part of God's cosmic plan or of our imperfect nature, and nothing short of the end of time would free us from them yet. At the dawn of the third millennium, humanity wakes up to an amazing realization. Most people rarely think about it, but in the last few decades, we have managed to rein in. Did you hear this? We have managed to rein in famine, plague, and war. He wrote this in 2017. Of course, these problems have not been completely solved, but they have been transformed from incomprehensible and uncontrollable forces of nature into manageable challenges. We need not pray to any god or saint to rescue us from them. We need not, uh, we know quite well what needs to be done in order to prevent famine, plague, and war, and we usually succeed at doing it. And yet we've just gone through a pandemic where people died, 
where businesses collapsed, where families were shattered. I mean, some of you aren't gathering with your whole family this weekend because of hurt and pain that was caused through the pandemic. Mental health increased in an astronomical level with depression and anxiety. Well, let's move to famine, right? I don't know if you read these reports, but January 28th, 2022, United Nations put out a massive report talking about worldwide famine. Massive report. That in Ethiopia, Nigeria, South Sudan, and Yemen, they were poised for the greatest levels of starvation in history. In fact, in 2021 in Yemen, 2.25 million children and 1 million pregnant and breastfeeding mothers were living in acute malnutrition. Does that sound like we've solved it? That's one of the four countries I just named. War. The Taliban taking over Afghanistan again. Russia invading Ukraine. And yet they believe our hope is in humanity. Homo Deus. Humanity is God. In his infamous TED Talk, he says this. There is no significant difference between us and a dog and a pig and a chimpanzee. In fact, he goes on to say, if you put a chimpanzee and a human being on an island alone to survive, the chimpanzee would survive and the human being would not. But people have moved from there, saying it's not religion that will save us. It's not humanity that will save us. Maybe you've read this. It's Google. Now you laugh. But listen, it's Google. This is the quote, Google knows me better than myself. I mean, come on. After God, it is said, and after man, the hero of history will now be machine. And when you take the algorithms that run and the possibility of AI that is coming forward, this is, this is all through the academy. All through the academy. Written over and over and over again that our hope now is going to be in machine. That it is the day of machine because God had his day and failed. Humans had their day and failed. And now machine will be our hope. Machine will be our hope. What hope will machine offer us? What hope will there truly be when there is famine or plague or war? The only hope is found in God. And as we have tried to eliminate God from the equation, that's what they've tried to do tried to dismiss his existence. The problem is they realize in doing so they can't create a theory in any way that allows for hope. John 19, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, Standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, John took her into his home. As he's dying on the cross, as Jesus is being executed, he's going through the greatest form of torture known to humanity, developed by the Persians, perfected by the Romans, where you would be suffocating, the nails pierced through your arms and hands, excruciating pain, already been whipped with a shrapnel across the whip, lacerating his back to shreds. As he's dying on the cross, and the wrath of the Father is being poured out on him for our sin, a suffering no one who was ever executed ever had to go through before, he sees his mom. He sees Mary. And he maybe thought of all the things she taught him, 
and thought of all the ways she cared for him. He knew the father had entrusted him to her, had confined him to a woman's womb for nine months. He had to be burped. They weren't super burps. They were just burps. He had to be changed. He was fully human, fully God, right? Fully human. It's not sinful to be sick. You know that, right? Jesus never sinned. We learn in the Gospels he was tired, he was hungry, he suffered, he bled. Mary nursed him when he fled as a kid, when he scraped his knee. And he looks at her and he says, John, take care of my mom. Because in that moment of incredible agony, his compassion and love and grace shines through. I don't know why he doesn't say it to any of his siblings. He doesn't. But he says, John, look after her. And John does. Later, verse 28, knowing everything had been finished so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked and put a sponge on it and they put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head, he gave up his spirit. One of the excruciating things on the cross is dehydration. You're there in the hot Mideastern sun. The sun is beating down on you. The darkness hadn't yet landed on the land. He there is lungs filling with water and fluid because of the way that he's being crucified, body bleeding, wrath of the Father poured out on him, and he's parched, but he's got a couple things to say. And so probably in a very weak voice, he says, I am thirsty. They take a, some wine vinegar that's there. Earlier, they'd offered him a different type of drink. It was a dulling agent to take away some of the pain that he would have gone through on the cross. That's the drink he denies in the gospel. But this time he says he's thirsty, and so they put the wine vinegar to his lips. And he cries out three simple words, it is finished. He accomplished everything he came to do. 33 years old, the Son of God come down. What did he accomplish? He fulfilled the law. He never sinned. He fulfilled the law perfectly in that he kept it comprehensively. He fulfilled the law completely. It was finished. He did everything he came to do. Also, how else did he fulfill the law? All of the Old Testament messianic promises, the dozens and dozens and dozens of promises that scholars would say if you read them, an incomprehensible number would be drafted. If you were to think of the probability of all of those prophecies, messianic promises being fulfilled in a person, in a being. And yet they're all fulfilled in Jesus. He keeps the law perfectly. He fulfills all of the messianic promises in 33 years. And he cries out, it is finished. Can you imagine? I never feel finished. There's always work to do. In fact, I was joking when I came here this morning. I love to research. I love to, I love to write. I love to read. I mean, I send my sermon notes out on Thursday this week. And I'm not done my sermon. 
And I spend time Friday morning. I spend time Saturday morning. I got up early this morning. And then I am pouring over stuff and looking at stuff and what I want to take in and what do I want to put out. And I never feel finished. I don't feel finished now and I'm standing here. That shouldn't offer you any form of comfort, should it? I just don't ever feel finished. And I'm like, I come in here. I'm like, well, Lord, I got notes. And Jesus said, it's finished. Completely entirely done. What I have come to do, I have accomplished in full. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. What did he finish? He knew that in that moment, in fulfilling all the messianic promises, in completely, comprehensively keeping the law, he knew he had defeated sin. He knew he had defeated Satan. And he knew he had defeated death. He knew who was in charge. And he knew it was him. Right? When Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, what does he say? He's been given all authority. He knew that. And they couldn't take his life. How do we know? He has to give up his spirit. In this moment, he gives his spirit up. He chooses the time when he will die. Even while they're executing him, he chooses it. He's in full charge of even his death. He decides when it's time, not them. He decides when he will die, not them. So he cries out, it is finished. I'm done. And then he bows his head and he gives up his spirit, knowing that sin and Satan and death have been utterly defeated. Well, their hope is shattered. I mean, the Jewish people were convinced that Jesus as Messiah was going to come and usurp the Roman rule. They were convinced that he was coming to lead Israel nationally. I mean, and imagine their hope in him. They watched him feed 5,000. They watched him raise Lazarus to life again, a man who'd been dead four days in a tomb. They watched him walk on water. I mean, no one could do this. If anyone could take over the Romans... If anyone could usurp Roman rule, if anyone could restore Israel, I mean, there's no prophet like this, there's no king like this, there's no one like this. If anyone could do this, it's Jesus, and he's the Messiah. I mean, Peter has explained it already. You are the Messiah, the Christ. And so they believe this is it. They didn't know what was going to happen, but they were convinced that somehow even on the cross, as they, as they, as they were, were, were scattering, that he would still somehow defeat the Roman rule, but this threw them. He dies. So later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Pilate, the Roman governor. Because the Jewish people had no authority. That's why they have to go to Rome. They have to go to Pilate, the Roman leader at that time of, of, of their area. Right? He's the governor. Um, they have to go to Pilate and ask for his body. Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. Why does... John comment on that, likely because at this point, when Joseph of Arimathea is going to get his body, it's a very public statement of his following Christ. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. Notice this, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, and taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, there was a new tomb. No one had ever been laid in it. And because it was the Jewish day of preparation, 
And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So Joseph of Arimathea comes. He's a disciple who had been meeting Jesus at night for fear of the Jews. He's not afraid anymore. He's willing to be publicly connected to Jesus. And Nicodemus, who met him at night, now comes to collect his body. It's a very public statement. Three themes through the Gospel of John. Many of you would know this. Some of you may not. Three themes in John, right? The one theme is the I am's. All of the I am's. I am the way. I am the resurrection. I'm life. All found through John. All in John. Only in John. All the I am's are in John. Second theme, believe. John will tell us this in chapter 21. That he wrote these things so that you'll believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. You see it in the first chapter of John 2. That anyone who believes in his name He gives the right to be children of God. In John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son to anyone who believes. So you see this theme all through John. The next one is light and dark. Jesus is the light of the world. He's coming to the darkness. Nicodemus meets him at night. John's the only author that tells us how the night falls uh, uh, at the cross in the way that it falls. Why? Because he has these themes running through so we better understand him. Nicodemus meets him at night. He's afraid to be seen with Jesus publicly. But now he's willing to come with Joseph Arimathea and take the body of Jesus and be publicly connected to him. Why? Because Nicodemus at some point through this journey, right? John 3 asking the questions. John 7, Nicodemus is there defending Jesus. They even start to accuse him. Are you with him now? By John 20, here 19 and 20, we know Nicodemus is a follower of Christ. He's now with Jesus. He's walking with him. He's a believer. In fact, history would tell us that he becomes one of the leaders of the early church with James. Jesus' half-brother. They prepare his body. They lay it there. And I imagine their hopes are just shattered. This isn't what we expected. This isn't what we thought. This wasn't what we wanted. You walked on water. You fed 5,000. You cast out demons. You healed people. How are you dead? How are you dead? And they're wrapping his body and preparing it for burial because they truly loved him. And I imagine that moment they thought, well, you weren't who we thought you were. You couldn't be. Maybe you've been there. Maybe there's times where you've put your hope in Jesus and Your life has been so crippling, so challenging, so difficult that you've questioned, are you really who you say you are? Are you really who I thought you were? Are you really the one I was told I could trust? Are you really the one I was told I could hope in? If I could hope in you like this, why is my family such a mess? If I could hope in you like this, why is my business in such disarray? If I could hope in you like this, why? And we ask all these questions about, where are you, God? Just like they did. Because they were expecting him to usurp the Roman rule. And in this moment, they're burying him. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She'd gone there with the other women, 
right? John records her as coming. Mark tells us there were other women there. We know that you can align the accounts really easily. It's like a car accident. I was hit a few years ago. My truck was demolished. I was hit. They didn't stop for a stop sign, right? The people behind them had one account of the story. The people coming toward me had an account of the story. The people behind me had a different account of the story, but all of it equal to one thing. They were in the wrong. I was in the right. They were charged. I was not. I was hit by them. So as you look at the gospel accounts, there's only two miracles that are in all four gospels, right? The resurrection and the feeding of the 5,000, which says something about the feeding of the 5,000 and who Jesus is when it's in all four gospels and the resurrection, obviously. And so with the resurrection here, we have different eyewitnesses explaining their viewpoint John says, yeah, Mary got there. She got to the tomb. She saw that the stone had been removed. That's exactly like what, what Mark is telling us. The stone wasn't removed so that they, so sorry, that Jesus could get out. He could get out any time. He could walk through walls. The stone was removed so that they could get in and see the one that was in was now out. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's John. She says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they put him. She's shocked. She's not expecting resurrection. Jesus has said he's the resurrection and life. Jesus told them, you tear this temple down and in three days it will be rebuilt. But this is shocking. In no way was she expecting resurrection. In no way was she expecting this. I don't know where they have put him. She assumes they took his body. She doesn't know who. Is it the Romans? Is it the Jewish leaders? Somebody took his body. Peter, John, what's happened? They've taken my Lord. Notice she's still calling him Lord. As we've done family devotions together through the pandemic in a way we've never done them, I've come to realize my children have favorite Bible stories. Avi's favorite Bible story in all of Scripture is Solomon with the two women that come to him whose one child has died and one child is still alive to decide who the living child belongs to. Avi recounted this recently in our home and she was reading the bible in an english accent don't know why very very expressively and she's reading the bible story and she said then solomon took his sword and drew it and he cut the baby in two to give a half to each of the women and jewel and i were like that's not what happens in the bible and avi's like it should have that would have been a much better ending <laughs> right and when we were reading through the Bible last year, I kind of picked kind of the big episodes of the Bible, reading through different parts. We get to this part in John, and he says, like, Dad, this is my favorite passage in all of the Bible. I'm like, why? He's like, read it, and you'll find out. Here we go. Ethan's favorite part of the Bible. I thought it was because of the resurrection. Hang on. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. They started to run for the tomb. Both were running but the other disciple, that's John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Ethan loves that John said, I beat Peter to the tomb. <laughs> he loves that he says, they're both running. But the other disciple, John, he beats Peter to the tomb. I'm like, Ethan, really? He's like, Dad, it's still in the Bible and I like it. <laughs> he bent over, he looked at the strips of linen, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter comes along behind him. Now notice, John even says, Ethan loved this, John's there long enough that he can look in, look around, and then Peter gets there. That's how fast he is. <laughs> then Simon Peter comes along behind him, goes straight into the tomb. 
he saw the strips of linen lying there and the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, the cloth was still lying in its place. It was separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first went inside. He saw and believed. He saw and believed. He realized he's alive. He realized at that moment, John realized what happened. Mary, no one has taken his body. Mary, he's alive. He believed. He believed that Jesus was risen to life again. I mean, no one could steal his body. I mean, why would the Jewish people do it? Why would the Romans do it? And if they did do it, if the Jewish people had stolen his body, or the Romans had stolen his body, on the day of Pentecost, just a few weeks later, when 3,000 people believe, if they wanted to stop the movement of Christianity, I mean, within weeks, we're at 20,000 believers. I'm going through Acts right now. You can see this through the book of Acts. All they had to do was present his body. It would have been preserved well enough that he would have been recognizable, though dead. It would have stopped Christianity in that moment. Here is your dead Messiah. He's not risen. But why was no body ever found? The Romans didn't take him. The Jews didn't take him. And the disciples didn't take him. I mean, all of the disciples die a horrific death, and you never die for a lie unless you believe it is true. So then the theories are they had a mass hallucination. I mean, people just stretch. I mean, the only answer is he's alive. Why women? I mean, in those days, if you're going to make up a story, women couldn't be the central character. They're the central character, talking about God's value of women, how much he loves women, equally created in his image, man and woman. And women show up at the two women whose testimony are, it would be inadmissible in court. If you're going to make this up, if you're going to write something, you don't write in women because nobody could believe their testimony. Why did God write in women? Because that's what he chose to do. He granted that the first people at the tomb would be the women to show his great love for all of humanity and that they are equally his image bearers. So his body wasn't stolen. They didn't write the story. If they did, men would have been there first. Had they taken his body, they would have just shown it on the day of Pentecost. But those aren't, for me, the greatest proofs for the resurrection. This one is. I've shared this so many times through Acts. Human history is unable to be explained without the resurrection. You cannot explain human history without the resurrection. In 1999, when we were moving to the year 2000 and into the third millennium, several publications, Life Magazine, Time Magazine, others, wrote about the most influential person or the most influential scientist or the most influential writing or the most influential invention in the last millennium. And the last issue published at the end of December, they wrote an article about the most influential human being in the last millennium. In the last millennium. And Reynolds Price wrote the article, and this is what he said, that the most influential being, human being in the last, not only in the last millennium, but in all of human history was Jesus of Nazareth. Then he listed person after person after person after person, and he said it would require much exotic calculation to deny that Jesus of Nazareth and his impact on our planet is not greater than all of those even combined. Never went far from his home, never controlled an army, Died at a young age. 
How is it possible that he be the most influential human being in all of history? Because he's not simply a man born. He was God come down. Who cloaked his deity in humanity and lived among us. That's how. Is that not good news? That he chose to come into the mess that we created. When we chose to sin. That our choosing to sin spiraled all of this into mess. And he said, I can fix that. But to do so, he knew he would have to die. To do so, he knew he would have to suffer. To do so, he knew he would have to bleed. To do so, he knew he would have to be abandoned by the Father on the cross as the Father's wrath was being poured out on him. And for the only time in history, he and the Father and the Spirit would have an interruption in the perfect fellowship that they always enjoyed, the communion that makes God God. That in that moment, there'd be an interruption in that communion as the Father's wrath is poured out on the Son, and the Son dies. And why? Paul talked about this on Good Friday. Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him. What's different because of the cross? We are. What's different because of the cross? We can be saved. What's different because of the cross? We can have a relationship with God. What's different because of the cross? We can be forgiven. What's different because of the cross? Our hope doesn't need to be in us and in our failings. What's different because of the cross? Our hope is in Jesus, the risen one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. What's different because of the cross is we now can have a relationship with God now and forevermore. That is great news. It is the great news of the gospel of what he's done. That God in the person of Christ has come and he grants us this incredible Relationship with him. It's why, though other religions migrate through migration, see some type of movement in their religion, they don't see conversion. I mean, not in mass numbers. It's why South Korea in 1874 can be void of almost any Christian. And as Presbyterian missionaries went in 100 years later, it can be 30% evangelical. That's why South America can move vastly in numbers from a handful of Christians to millions of Christians. It's why in 1949, there could be estimates of a million Christians in China and now estimates of anywhere between 80-ish million is where they'd pin it. Why? When communists is saying Christianity is not welcome here, our Savior is alive. Our hope is not in Google. Goodness, can you imagine? That's what they're writing. Our hope is in Google. Oh, I'd love to debate one of those guys on a stage. I would just love to have a few minutes. I really would. I'm all in. I mean, I mean, our hope is in Google, our hope is in AI, our hope is in this. It's, we've, we've moved past religion, past humanity, right? Because what, what was humanism? Humanism is that we were the source and authority of all meaning. That's humanism, right? We've moved from religion where we thought God was the source and authority of all meaning to humanism where we thought we were the source and authority of all meaning. 
to now this. And what, what are they saying? What is the great new commandment? That everything belongs on the information highway. So that through the algorithms, we're able to find hope. Is that any different than the Babylonians creating their gods? Is that any different than the Canaanites creating their gods? Is that any different than the Hindus creating their god? Is that any different than the Muslims creating their god? Is that any different than any other group creating their god? It is not. It is not. There is only one God who has revealed himself to us. And he's found supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. He came, he lived, he died, and three days later he was raised to life again. He is King of kings, he is Lord of lords, and he is the hope for the universe. It is simply him. It is found in him. He is the hope for our brokenness. He is the hope for our sin. He is the hope when we encounter death. He is our hope in the midst of mental health illness. He is the hope when disease is around us. He is our hope. He is our hope. And people will say, well, God's let me down. I feel like God's let me down because of whatever's happened to my children, or whatever's happened to my family, or whatever's happened to my business, whatever's happened to this. Listen, listen, listen. Sin and Satan and death, though defeated in part, will see a defeat in fullness one day. And in their continual rampage, I mean, I, my son has said this recently. Um, you know, like, if he was Adam with Eve in the garden, we not, may not be in this mess. And I'm like, okay, Ethan, I love you, man. <laughs> but like, I know me, and I know the Spirit of God is in me. And somehow with God's Spirit in me, I'm still able to go into all kinds of mess and choose sin over God. All of us would have done what Adam did. All of us would have done that. In fact, my sin may have spiraled us into a worse mess if that was possible. Our hope is never in us. Our hope is in God. Who granted a death blow to sin and Satan and death because sin couldn't accuse him. Satan couldn't defeat him. Death had no ownership over him. Because he hadn't sinned, he deals this death blow to them knowing that one day it will be final upon his return and he will return. The clouds will part. The trump will sound. He will descend. And he is our hope. You see, it's the very opposite. God didn't let you down. Any God who would cloak his deity with humanity Enter into time and space. Come from a place where he never need experience suffering or pain, where he never needed to bleed or die, where he never needed to go through the wrath of a father being poured out on him. Any God who would come down and live through that for you because you are his joy, he's not out to ruin your life. He's out to give you life in abundance. Is that not good news? That's what he's out to do. I talked about prayer last week. i got to wrap this up in a minute here. You see, too often we think our hope is in our prayers. Our hope is in what we prayed. Our hope's not in our prayers. Our hope is in God to whom we've prayed. Our hope is in Him. He is God. And He's in charge. This past week, there was a massive realization around James North and North End Landing. On Wednesday, I spoke at the Hub. I haven't been to the Hub in years. I've never been to the Hub in this building. And at the hub, people realized 
that I was in charge. People didn't know I was in charge. Everybody assumed Paul was in charge. A while ago, they thought Marcio was in charge. And then they saw Marcio asking Paul questions. And they realized in that moment that Paul was in charge. And a couple of them have seen me ask Paul questions and assumed that meant I didn't know what I was doing and Paul was in charge. That's fine. I don't know what I'm doing. That's okay. That granted you a great deal of confidence right now, didn't it? So Thursday, I come into the office and guys are sitting out in the smoky booth. They're like, it was mind-blowing last night. Like literally, this is the words being used to find out that you were in charge and not Paul. I'm like, wow, like why was it mind-blowing? Well, he just seems like he should be in charge. That's what they were saying. It was just a great moment. And I don't know, you just don't come across as the guy who should be in charge. I'm like, oh, this is great. And so then last night, we're sitting at the dinner, we're talking, and this is still topic of conversation. Paul had a great moment at the dinner. He even brought it up because people's minds were just blown by this this week. Like, literally, everyone around North Atlanta that knows this week was like, do you guys know Dwayne's the guy in charge? Like, it was just... So, so last night, say, they said this. They said, so anything that happens here, they said, it's actually because of you. And I said, no, no. Thank you, Kendra. I said, anything that happens here is because of God. I said, he's in charge. This is because of him, not because of any of us. He's alive. Is that not good news? He's not dead. The power of death was broken by him because he'd never sinned. And listen to these words. These are his promises. Our hope is in him, not in humanity, not in machine, not in Google. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I mean, you think of if you're going through that stuff, couldn't you say, well, where is God? For your sake, we face death all day long and we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, no, in hardship, in trouble, in persecution, in famine, in nakedness, in danger, in sword, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Is that not great news? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, that neither the angels nor the demons, that neither the present nor the future, nor any power, that neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Andrew, you guys can come up. And lastly, it's not only a love that God grants us in this hope, it is a victorious hope. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15. So death has been swallowed up in victory. So where, O death, is your victory? And where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I spoke at a women's meeting this past week, and through the pandemic, one of the women's husbands died. It was actually a little weird. I got there. I do it every year. It's, a, it's at a church in our city that supports us, and I got there, and there was a group of ladies in their 80s at a table, and they said, this feels like our annual date, date day with Dwayne. I'm like, that is weird just weird. And they said, you can sit with us. And I was so glad I'd already put my bag down somewhere. I said, sorry, I'm already sitting over there, but yeah, thank you. And, um, and so as I was in the room and lots of women talking to me after, a lady came up to me 
And uh, she said, you know, through the pandemic, my husband died, Pastor. And uh, I was with him as he died. And he was closing his eyes, she said. And he was taking his last breath. And I looked at him and I said, I'm sorry. And he smiled and he said, don't be. When I open my eyes, I know I'll see Jesus. And he said, she said, he held my hand and said, he is our hope. He is our hope. And then he said to her this, I'm about to be more alive than I've ever been. And those were the last words she ever heard him say. I'm about to be more alive than I've ever been. Jesus is alive. Amen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Would you stand to worship the living God with us?